Hey, Pete. Hey, Aaron. Get ready to start Trek. Except the intro is bad. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I'm not gonna Trek. If that's if that is you're gonna Trek. Oh, buddy. Trek. Track. You know what's funny is that um, I've been like so. I'm so glad we'll talk about what the show is in a second. I'm so glad we're back doing this. We released. Uh, well, yeah. Well, I'll just go into it. Where we love to watch. We're a movie podcast. Typically, we do that, and then we have the sidecast called Star Trek that was born out of the fact that Peter had basically, besides the first two Abrams uh, Star Trek 2009 reboot, had never seen anything Star Trek, and I've been a lifelong fan, so. Over the last, like, five years, we've been going through at a very leisurely pace. I don't want Peter to get annoyed or overloaded. Um, and we've been going through as a side cast, but we also have been really anxious to get back to it. And so we decided to do March of 2023. We've been doing this podcast now. Uh, this is our, like, seven. This is our last month before we hit seven years. We're going to be fr- we're going to be free to follow our muse to follow our uh, our counselor, our empaths, as you would, and just do whatever we want. So we're doing, we're ra- kind of wrapping up Star Trek The Next Generation. We've took Peter through an intro in the original series, a few, uh, few, few uh, famous episodes. Then we watched the first six TOS movies with thematically resonant um, episodes of the original series. So you saw a few through there. And we have gone through a lot more Next Generation episodes than than that. Um, but we've watched Generations. We've watched First Contact. We've watched Insurrection. We're going to end we're, – well, we're going to begin this month with the ending. the Or what the ending was, I guess, in 2002. We'll talk a little bit more about – I guess it's not the ending yeah. anymore. <laughs> um, and we're doing Star Trek Nemesis. We're doing uh, – Peter really hasn't got too Romulan pilled yet. Mm-mm. So we're doing a couple of Romulan-related episodes uh, with uh, t- what, I, what are actually considered two of the best episodes of their respective series, uh, Balance of Terror and The Defector. Um, and then we're going to really get to the good stuff of The Next Generation, uh, which is kind of funny because I have said to you there's a lot of great TOS episodes peter but the movies are really where i think that series shines where the next generation is a little different the, there's a, there's a couple of good movies i think generations in first contact there's two terrible movies which were one of which we're talking about tonight but it's the sh- it's the shows that are really good and i've tried to save many of my favorite episodes for this run that we were talking about doing of like really going into the best or aaron's favorite next generation episodes so we're going to cover that today, and then next week we're going to do Aaron's Favorites Part 1. We're going to do Aaron's Favorites Part 2 the following week, and then we're going to end this month, this this kind of ending of Next Generation, kind of for now, 
with the uh, season finale of – or the series finale, excuse me, of The Next Generation called All Good Things, which is generally considered one of the best series finales of all times and is easily one of my favorite uh, Next Generation episodes as well. So we're not – we're kind of beginning the ending with the bad movie and we're going to end on um, the actual ending of Next Generation, which is a fantastic send-off to, to the crew. But, Peter, I'm really excited to get back to this because – you want to get back in the Romulan groove. We're back in the Romulan groove, um, as as one member of Kiss would say. Would say. <laughs> um, we recorded a bunch of episodes in, I think, 2020 and 2021. Or maybe 20. I think most of it was 2020. And we didn't release those until last year when we kind of did that two-month break of cleaning out our archives in March and April of last year. So even though it's only been a year since you've heard us talk about The Next Generation, it's been like two and a half, three years since we've talked about it. Yeah. I, you know, there's the, the the fable of the tortoise and the hare. Yeah. And I, I like to think, you're familiar with that that fable? I, I, I didn't know it was a fable. I thought that was just, you know, the historical documents <laughs> sharing an accurate story from when animals used to talk before humans had evolved and stole the speech from them as i understand evolutionary yeah. biology well according to my bible when the tower of babel fell it also struck animals with the inability to yeah. speak that was big uh yeah. that was huge they were they i mean the bible doesn't get too far into that after adam and eve eat the apples all the animals were eating everything in that garden like they had no self-control and they also ate that apple and other things that were also very sinful to eat there was of course the cursed watermelon that no one was supposed to eat Mm -hmm. there was the uh the temptuous figs uh (laughs) and uh the animals got into all that shit uh yeah 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 yeah. the forbidden mango is also Mm -hmm. uh you know kind of a forgotten part of the story Um, but i forgot the 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 um uh impatient rabbit um also devoured the uh the, sen- the sensuous carrot um yep. and uh, yeah and of course uh the fuckable rhubarb um yeah. but the point of the they, they didn't eat, that, they didn't eat that now that we've yeah they didn't eat it <laughs> they, <laughs> they, they didn't eat they that they still did exactly what they were not supposed to do with it no clues that. read your bible do your research <laughs> read your bible You'll, you can you can do it. What happens to the fuckable rhubarb? Uh, yeah. God just said, you know, don't goof my barb. Okay, yeah, that's why that's why he like you know in the same way like he flooded the earth when he was angry about some other stuff. That's why he punished the carrot who ate the f- or who fucked the fuckable rhubarb. Spoiler mm-hmm. by making the leaves of the rhubarb poisonous. Ah, yeah. That's God is all you. about the, the like the long term revenge mm-hmm. against a species for a single act of one. And so don't think that was isolated to humans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, <laughs> God was also irrational. Um, he was yeah, so very. We, we were made in His image. Um, yeah. But the reason I bring up uh, the historical fact of the tortoise and the hare is because yeah. um, there's a there's a, a lesson to that story that the tortoise goes slow, but is ha- keeps a steady clip and eventually comes out on top. I would say we're sort of like a tortoise that also took all the breaks that the rabbit did. Yeah, no, I, mean, um, I was like, well, hold on. We, we, we <laughs> have gone in spurts. It's like if the, the hare took... Many, many naps. 
Or the tortoise. Theoretically, the tortoise had literally moved on. Yeah, and died like he was of old age. While we, while the rabbit is like still running the race. I think. Yeah, I think that's that's close. But yeah, so, so and we we still have a plan. There's there's more Star Trek after this. We'll we'll come back at some point. But and this won't even be the the end of the next generation. We have some thematically tied episodes that relate to the Abrams series. We're going to cover. Uh, we have uh, Peter really wants to do a worst Star Trek episodes, and God knows there's a few good Next Generation episodes that fall into that. So this won't be the end of Next Generation, but it really will be the kind of the end of, I think, some of the really, really uh, strong episodes or some of my favorite episodes. And I- I've already kind of got – I've started dipping my toe into rewatching some of these, and uh, the good episodes are really amazing. They 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 go down very smooth, uh, and even though I've seen them – Hundreds of times, I mean, probably hundreds of times, probably more than most movies because I had them recorded and was at that age where this is all I would watch for for a while that uh, hopefully, Peter, you enjoy talking about those as well. And thankfully, we have a couple good episodes to talk about before the movie, which is – I said this to you in text. Like, I think there's, you know, there's there's some good arguments to be made for Star Trek Insurrection or Star Trek Into Darkness being the worst – Star Trek movie, people who say Star Trek V is the worst are just wrong. There's, I mean, that's not, that's the worst of the original series movies, but there is definitely worse movies. That still has a charm, a fun 80s practical effects, stupid idea, crazy William Shatner charm. Yeah, we had a pretty, we had a, we had a fairly warm reaction to what is a, a, a messy movie. It's messy, it's ridiculous, it's fun. Um, Insurrection. Peter, you said you really listened to the episode. I think both of us were pretty down on that movie. It's kind of silly and stupid, but like it's it's like fa- it's it feels very low stakes for a movie, and it's silly and stupid. But like, I don't know how you felt. We'll talk about Nemesis, but like rewatching Nemesis, I was like, yeah, this movie's a piece of garbage. Yeah, here's here's what here's what I'll say. <clears throat> Insurrection um, was. Um, clumsy and lazy and rehashed much better storylines um and had some pretty terrible politics but it at least resembled like a bad episode of star trek yeah um nemesis uh doesn't resemble star trek at all it feels like a perhaps like a lost in space movie with the serial color the serial numbers filed off like it does not resemble a star trek movie pretty much in in any way except for some of the aesthetic markers for my money still the worst one that i've seen is star trek into darkness because that one is the most enraging um which i unfortunately unfortunately i can't always practice what i preach i always say it's worse to be boring than awful. Um, Star Trek Into Darkness does kind of go through a wormhole and become so awful that I I can't actually like I I, I can't a- actually like condone yeah. that. Like it, for a certain point, like me being able to zone out and just be like, yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess that's a pretty good ship explosion. That looks all right. Like at a certain point, yeah. that's better than me being like, are they putting a nine eleven conspiracy allegory in the middle of my Star Trek? What are you doing? Yeah, it'll be interesting when you revisit that, or when we were, I haven't seen that movie since it came out. Much like Nemesis, it was, Nemesis, this is only the third time I've seen it. I think even Insurrection, which I saw in theaters, I probably saw 10 or 15 times, because it was a Star Trek movie and it came out when I was 
you know, 15 or something like that. And so I definitely watched it a lot, even though I wasn't the biggest fan of it. Nemesis is the only Star Trek movie to date that I, that since I like, since Star Trek six that I didn't see in theaters, uh, it barely got marketed. The, the previews looked terrible. And like, I was like, oh, I have to get around to that, but was not excited about it. Uh, and like it was already out of theaters by the time I like got around to go see it, and uh, yeah, I think I watched it, I rented it or bought it when it came out. I hated it, and then like ten or fifteen years later, I was like, uh, probably ten years later, I was like, I bought the whole DVD collection, and I was like, I'm gonna give this another chance. I have very low expectations, and I, I mean, I hated it again, and now for the third time, I've hated. Like, there's just it's. We'll get into, like, why it doesn't resemble Star Trek, but I think, you know, you are right to call that out because the director of this movie did not – not only did not know Star Trek, which is fine. Um, the director of Star Trek Two and Star Trek Six is an example that we talked about. Uh, Nicholas Meyer, he didn't know Star Trek until he got hired to direct Star Trek II either. And he watched tapes and he was like, how can I tell a story that connects to this universe? Stuart Baird, who directed this movie, uh, had no interest in learning, kept forgetting the characters' names on the sets, hated the script, felt like he never wanted to make a sci-fi movie after this again because he felt hemmed in by all these other things. And all the actors hated him. I mean, this this was a movie, a, a Star Trek movie made by someone who was trying to further his career, who hate, wasn't hated the material is not even the right word. He just wasn't interested in any capacity. And I think that shows uh, I think that shows on on the screen and the cast kind of like continued frustration with this movie is is one of the main reasons why Picard, why, why this didn't end up being the end, because as, I haven't watched it yet. Um, but Star Trek Picard is airing its starting its third season as we're recording this. No one has really come forward and said I love Picard, but everyone's kind of like at least it's a better ending that they're trying to do for those characters than Star Trek Nemesis. And at least they're saying the third season is um, better than the first two seasons. So, again, I haven't seen any of it, but I can't imagine it's worse than this. But we'll get there. Peter, we're going to talk Romulans. So yeah. the only we the only exposure you've had to Romulans because in any of the this, the Romulans are basically not in any Star Trek original series movie. I think one of them is like an ambassador in one scene, but they don't really get into anything Romulans. Um, I think your your main exposure to Romulans at this point was uh, Commander Sela, Tasha Yar's daughter from the alternate universe, helping. The uh, 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 helping the uh, uh, Lursa sisters. No, mm-hmm. is Lursa her? Is it the Dura sisters? The, the Dura, Dura helping sisters the, from the Klingons who the want Klingon to start civil sort war. Of a civil war, so they can climb the chaos yeah. ladder. Yeah, but that's essentially your only experience with Romulans, which are I have kind of always been known as like along with Klingons, kind of the main two alien races or antagonistic races of the original series. And actually, the only reason that Klingons in the original series were featured more often than Romulans was because the ears were very expensive. (laughs) And so many times, you know, at the time, they didn't have the makeup for the Klingons. As you remember, they were just kind of like brown face, which (laughs) was a whole thing we discussed. Um, But yeah, so they, they they would... 
kind of used the Romulans, but they were limited from a budgetary purpose. Um, the Romulans are a big part of the first season finale of Star Trek The Next Generation. They basically have been dormant in the neutral zone, and they kind of announced that they've returned and they're going to be engaging with activities in the galaxy and stuff like that. Um, but, Peter, what before you watched all this stuff, what, did you, what was your kind of impression of Romulans? I guess um, you've seen... I guess you've seen Star Trek T- uh, 2009, which obviously Romulans are a big part of that. <clears throat> I've seen enough of it, maybe through stuff we've watched, maybe maybe through stuff I've snuck on my own. Um, I've seen enough of it to know that they're, yeah, they're like this Roman fascist version of Vulcans. Like, yep. similar haircuts, similar ears. They split off from the Vulcans or Vulcans split up from them. They occupied the same planet at some point. Like, they were on one side, the, the Vulcans yep. are on the other. Um, and then, yeah, obviously, Romulans are kind of shorthand for, like, um, imperialist dickheads uh, it, in most of the stuff I've seen. Um, and the stuff we watched right now has not really <laughs> dissuaded me from that impression. Yeah, they they don't really have a, like, in most of the stuff I've seen, they don't really have a redemption arc in any The way Klingons like, do. The way that Klingons eventually did. Even though, like eventually they bring Klingons back to being at war with the Federation in Deep Space Nine time. Like, that ends, by the way, and they make peace with the Klingons again. Uh, Romulans are essentially always assholes. Uh, Up until, this is kind of a spoiler for later on, like, until Star Trek Discovery's third season, when you, which actually takes place in the 29th century, and you kind of, like... That's the first time that they're like, oh, Romulans kind of figured it out. But they're villains. They're the, yeah, you're right, Roman fascist dictators. Uh, they are, you know, cunning and conniving, only have their own interests and don't have humanity. Some of the other episodes you'll be watching next week, Peter, like feature like Romulans is almost like side antagonists who just like after even they get saved by the Enterprise are like, well, let's blow them up anyways. Like they just in general have not any sort of like ethical connection to uh to like humanoid life but to themselves and the empire only but you're right something like 10,000 years ago the vulcans and the romulans were one species they broke off vulcans accepted logic and peace and romulans essentially accepted um uh, not doing any of that um so they're a distant relation but there's a lot of efforts towards reunification of the species that we'll talk about at a later date too and that's a that that's a plot point in star trek 2009 mm-hmm. uh, as you as you know uh, or may remember uh the other thing is that uh a couple weird things i haven't seen all of star trek enterprise and i know i think they mentioned this a little bit so they talk about this imbalance of terror that the Romulans uh, had a hundred year war with the Federation where at the time the technology did not exist for view screens. And so they never actually saw the Romulans. They would fight them. They had a treaty at some point, but no one ever met a Romulan. I think some of that gets retconned in Star Trek Enterprise, but that's kind of set up at the beginning. And then the, the legend other part passes that like th- this was. Yeah. This was a, a war. Uh, this was a war fought until it established a barrier, and we never really got to know them. Yeah, or saw them, or knew what they looked like. Which is why everyone's surprised that they look just like Spock um, in Balance of Terror. And then the other part is that they 
there's always been a mentioned like twin <laughs> homeworld. Hold on, hold on. Yeah, it's not just that they look like Spock. Isn't the actor who plays Sarek the same actor who plays? Yeah, you're right, Mark Mark <laughs> Leonard. He he did that. That, that guy yeah. looks like your dad. That guy looks like your dad, dude. <laughs> it, it should have been the opposite because the when you meet uh, Sarek, it's in a season two episode, Balance of Terror, season one. So yeah, when they met, like, are you sure that's your dad or or that or did that Romulan commander actually not blow himself up and now it's yeah, yeah? I think that guy's space seppuku himself <laughs> yeah uh the other big part though that of the romulans is that there was uh much like again the the namesake from roman mythology was that there's there was twin homeworlds of the romulan empire which was romulan romulus and remus and uh the concept of of remus was always just assumed to be like another planet that Romulans lived on. It's not till Star Trek Nemesis. And then as far as I know, never again, at least with anything that I've ever seen, uh, are the idea that actually the Remans are a caste system that have like evolved into like Nosferatu versions. Yeah, they're like the Romulans who they, yeah. Uh, I mean, like they've evolved to be more, more nocturnal and stuff because they're on the the, the dark side of this like moon-like planet, (laughs) exoplanet, whatever. Yeah, so, I mean, that was new to Star Trek. Like, there always was this idea of twin planets of of Romulus and Remus. The concept that the Remans are a different caste system or that Remans are a whole different species was introduced. And I think never spoken about after Star Trek Nemesis. But um, I I have to say, the idea of making a... a, Okay, so this is... I'm both going to... I'm going to castigate Star Trek and I'm going to castigate myself. The idea of making a... A um, a Roman equivalent, yeah, and literally calling them Romulans, yeah, is very embarrassing. I did not make the connection that that was a name thing until I was watching. It was a Romulus and Remus thing, the two wolves that supposedly yeah. created Rome. Yeah. Um, I did not make the connection on Romulan v- v- equals Romulus uh, until they were like, "Well, there's there's a Remus and there's Remans." Uh, yeah. didn't make that connection until this movie. And then I got very mad for like two minutes, both at me and at them. Cause it's so obvious, but like, it's, it's like if they had like a Japanese equivalent. Um, <laughs> well, may, I was just about to say like, uh, maybe it is like the thing about like, that's since we're hearing the English version of the universal translator, like the English version of their name is like in the same way we call, you know, japan japan but like but it's nippon nippon yeah um like maybe that's what we're we're hearing but i agree with you i mean i didn't put those together forever but that's also because like i knew about romulans before i knew about the roman empire yeah i guess that makes like uh it was almost cool to be like oh cool there's other there's another romulus besides the planet the romulans are from what a cool thing to pull from yeah, that absolutely makes um, yeah. sense because I I uh, I obviously learned about like ancient Rome in like high school and I had watched very little Star Trek up to that point, almost yeah. nothing I'd say. So let's start with Balance of Terror. So Balance of Terror is uh, a first season episode. It is I think like episode eleven or twelve. It's still considered like I actually as as part of like reviewing some of my list making and, and cross referencing and stuff like that. Balance of Terror is, is usually considered one of the best T, uh, TOS episodes. 
some TV Guide thing, I think, ranked it like the third best episode, uh, Star Trek episode across all series of all time. Like, it's usually very high in the list. And it's, you know, partially because it has this idea of, you know, a throwback to like submarine era uh, movies of like, like two captains with a sense of honor, but loyalty to their own empire, you know, essentially trading like this back and forth in a in a world with the cloaking device. It also just introduces a lot of concepts. It introduces the idea of this the Romulans, the war, uh, the idea that they're related to Vulcan. It's like it's pretty heavy on something that were was was just a throwaway, here's the alien of the week in uh, you know, in a Star Trek episode in in 1967, that became just a kind of a huge and and sort of a perfect look at this species that became a huge part of Star Trek. It sets them up consistently from from there on too. So it's it's well loved, um, and it's a, it's an episode as I started to really try to watch Star Trek original series episodes and you know rent tapes from the local premiere video and everything else that I had to do before streaming to try to watch all these Star Trek episodes was one that I was very actively excited to seek out and watch. Um, I don't know, like, I don't know if I would rank it my 10 favorite Star Trek TOS episodes, just because there's other episodes I have, like, generally more affection for, but I loved watching again. I'm like, oh yeah, this is a, this is a great episode of the original series. Uh, before we get into, like, what happens in a pier, what were your thoughts on Balance of Terror? And also getting to return to some TOS again. Oh. I I, ad- I adore it. Um, this is if you remove cool like slimy monster of the week episodes. Um, yeah. this is probably my top ten. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean of what I've seen so far, you've seen like fifteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, you haven't seen, seen any of the really bad. We're gonna do space hippies and space Chicago. <laughs> I've seen a few though that I've been like, I understand why this is like important to the fandom, but like. I, a few of them that you showed me, I understand that, like, they're not necessarily your favorite in the world, but they are, um, or necessarily the best episodes, but they're representative of the fandom, or they're representative of the Or just representative, like, yeah, because, yeah, we are trying to do, like, you know, we're macro-dosing you of, like, hey, like, amok time where, you know... they call that overdosing. (laughs) Overdosing. Amok time where, like, Spock gets horny... Is not one of my favorite episodes, but is a really good... Like, if I'm going to show you an episode that kind of lets you know what Spock and Kirk's relationship yeah. is like to understand later on stuff, it's a good one to show you. I, I, I actually feel like it should be studied as a way to um, spend your budget uh, frugally. Yeah. Um, because it almost entirely takes place on the command deck, right? Um, it is largely conversations and reusing the same clips of the enterprise going forward or quote unquote backing up uh with phasers the it's largely the same footage they reuse the same footage of the um the romulan ship disappearing and reappearing yeah they're it's really economical in what it's willing to show you um it's mostly just people having strategic like basically voting on what their next chess move is but it's so compelling because yeah. of the central performances and this this great cast that they put together. Yeah, it's almost like we both uh, love Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. And I think we talked very positively about the last like 20-minute sequence where they both are blinded. And again, again, that kind of submarine atmosphere of like people making chess moves and responding to it. And this is like almost an episode-length version of that. And it's really – it also really – sets up Kirk in an early episode as a very, like, cunning adversary because on paper, Kirk has the disadvantage, right? 
they they're matched evenly from a weapon standpoint and like ability to destroy each other the romulans have a very smart commander leading them who's cunning and has gotten away from all these little raids that he's done but if you weigh all that maybe you say it's even but the romulans have a cloaking device they can disappear at will and reappear and you know that is not an ability the enterprise has and so you Kirk essentially with like, you know, what whatever analogy you want to use, like less pieces left on the chessboard or less pieces available left to him in the chessboard or whatever, he has to figure out a way to still outwit an opponent that is on paper should win this this conflict. And that's especially in an early like, you know, you think about it like you have you even now have so much Star Trek knowledge and you you understand who Kirk is, and you understand who Spock is as a character. This is episode eleven. I mean, this is still, like, people getting to know who Kirk was. And this was such an, even for myself watching it as a kid, such an easy way to go, like, oh, he, like, he's a very good captain of a starship and is able to navigate a very tense, complicated situation in a way that ends up not just on top, but in a way that his opponent is, like, you know, mad respect, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think it's a paraphrase. I don't think it is very it is very funny when he's like, I think in a different time we would have been friends, and he's like, "You fucking kidding me, dude?" (laughs) No. (laughs) What's funny is that like in all the stuff I read about the episode beforehand, I haven't seen this this episode in probably twenty years. I have no idea. They talk about that as a moment between two captains, and that's kind of how I remembered it from books I've read and people talking about this episode of like you know in another life we could have been friends and like kirk reciprocating but in you're right in the scene kirk kirk has a look like okay man like if that's what you want to go out thinking great but i don't feel that way you've tried to kill us yeah he exactly his look is you dragged me and my crew through the mud trying to test the boundaries of of a treaty we made a century ago yeah you killed a bunch of completely innocent like monitoring or recon <laughs> staff like, yeah i i have no i have no but like it is kind of telling to like the romulan um mythology or uh, ethos that yeah. like he's like I, because you defeated me i view you as my superior now yeah um it's nice to view it from that perspective i really i i was not buying it when i thought the show was saying uh that the both of them are were like actual equals in some way no what's yeah again it 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 seems to be like in my memory of it was that like that was a a moment between the two of them and it's not it's a really one-sided moment between between the commander i also like i I wish i had looked this up beforehand but there was they were there was two snipers in world war ii that were in a sniper battle um there was like a finnish sniper and a russian sniper they were in a sniper battle whatever and they sort of became calls to arms for both sides, like, in, in a certain regard. Um, and um, whatever. The Finnish, the Finnish sniper at some point got interviewed, and uh, they, they, like, they were trying to play up the... They were trying to... I, I wish I had this... The, the, the Jordan Bird <laughs> rivalry that was Yeah, they were trying to play that. up the, like... Like, do you see this as like, uh, you know, this is the sort of of gamesmanship of war? And he's like, no, I want to, I want this man dead. <laughs> like, yeah, he wouldn't yeah. play the game, or yeah. he was playing whatever game they wanted him to play, which is just like, no, I'm shooting at him and trying to hunt him. He's trying to hunt me because we want each other dead. 
Yeah, um, and Kirk cares about his crew. Like, hey, you know, the guy I was just going to marry to this other lady in my crew, he's dead now. So that's that's a bummer for everyone. So no, <laughs> like, this was not a great moment between two champions, you asked. Yeah, you asshole, and it, it works better that way. The other thing this episode turning war does, into that sort of chess game is is yeah. ultimately like I think very offensive to Kirk. And the the thing that I found most striking about this episode dramatically, and is also striking about the the sequel episode or you know whatever mirror episode in TNG, is that Kirk is not just worried about what happens to his immediate crew. One of his first moves is to like send out logs via the um the the like. I don't know the dump, <laughs> the subspace. Yeah, so yeah, send out send out logs basically to like try and like make sure that if he accidentally starts a war, that the historical record shows that like he tried. Uh, yeah, he tried not to. Yeah, and they it's it's that's a great like mirror they do in TNG too, where he's like, Data, please record all of this because yeah. this could get a little crazy. Um, the other thing I like this is also a really good showcase for. It's funny I um. I finished, um, God, no, I, I literally just finished it. I, I've been so like Star Trek pilled and excited to do this month. As you know, Peter, I, I've been, I've been watching all of the TOS and TNG episodes that I never saw. So I'm all the way through season two. Uh, it's actually insane how, how little of the season three TOS episodes I've, I've seen just cause they weren't available at the video store. Cause they, they usually stopped whatever subscription sometime mid season two. And, um, there's even been a few TNG episodes that I, uh, you know, hadn't seen and, and, and even more that I'd forgotten that I'd seen and, and watched some kind of unmemorable episodes over again. But, um, and as such, I've been reading, uh, I've been reading books. I had had two books that I've had forever. One I just finished. Um, oh, it's called Phasers on Stun by Ryan Britt, which is a great, like, uh, from an audiobook, 10-hour, like, great history. And just came out last year. It was on some, like, best nonfiction books, which was, uh, and like, relating it and talking about a lot of social issues. And it was really good. And then I'm I'm in the middle of the 50-year uh, mission, too, which is, like, an oral history of the entire, like, track 1967 to uh, 2017 there you know a lot of those go into like the how um how important the social commentary was to the people writing it and like how you know even though ron barry didn't necessarily like have pure altruistic um thought, thoughts and had his own like bad ideas and stuff like that he was still like he had a lot to say, and a lot of the writers they hired had a lot to say about the world they lived in that was, you know, censored by television at the time. And so, like, this is also, while it's, like, a good Star Trek Captain Kirk action showcase between alien species that, you know, and the the concern about destruction, it also has a lot of, like, good Cold War allegories in it as well, and Vietnam War allegories about the idea of, like, hey, you look like the enemy. Maybe you are the enemy of someone that they know, love, and trusted – up until the point that he slightly looked like, you know, someone that they were fighting, which is, of course, reminiscent of, like, a lot of America's, like, racism against uh, Japanese Americans in World War II and against Vietnamese Americans and during the Vietnam War and Korea, like, or just generally Asian Americans during that time. And, like, that's, you know, that's also one of the things that, like, even though, you know, Star Trek's politics, as we've talked about many times, are still ultimately, like, a product of liberal politics of the era those shows came out. So, you know, it still is like they're doing a fun action adventure sh sh uh, show while also commenting about like the racism war brings out when you pit like these species against each 
against each other. And, like, uh, you know, that was a part of the episode I kind of forgot about because it's so easy to focus on the neutral zone and Romulans and all this sort of stuff when I was a kid. And it's like, you know, it doesn't overpower the episode, but it still is, like, the the way that, like, Captain Kirk as, like, the the ideal of what a human being should be in many, many cases or the way he's presented – and the show is like so adamant to not start a you know a red scare against uh, against Spock and how like he uses uh, the word adamant. Bacon. Yeah, I mean it's it, like it's 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 good and again it's it it does that thing that Star Trek kind of had to do and it many times did it really well, which is like hey we can't say this about uh, races, but we can say. That if you're judging a Vulcan because they look like a Romulan, you're a ra- you're a space racist <laughs> and a bigot. Yeah, yeah. I I think it's I think it's um telling that to the overall like ethos of the show that in the middle of this episode where the Romulans do not come off well, basically, um, that in the middle of that they have a message about uh, why you should not um, perform perform basically uh, uh racial uh discrimination um uh particularly against people that just kind of look like your enemy and you're right yeah, yeah. The, the this is this is an era where uh active racial discrimination was happening against anybody that might have been construed as looking vietnamese um yeah. americans in their infinite wisdom think that they can um spot somebody in, and uh, id their ancestry with, on on looks um so, uh, and then this is also a generation that very recently had, as you point out, yeah, internment camps. Um, one of, one of the, uh, most un- unspoken, um, or under, underreported, uh, horrors of, uh, the 20th century, right? Like, basically, well, good. People- I mean, it's illegal, I think, to talk about it now in some, depending on your state. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I like that in the middle of that they're doing that because it reminds you of what the actual ethos of the show is, which is like, it's not that Romulans as a race are evil. It's that, yeah. that there's this historical um, antipathy, there's this historical um, antagonism, let's say, uh, between those two based on, honestly, shit that like your grandfather uh, yeah, they ran. They ran, I mean, they ran into each other in space and went, "You guys, those aren't our ships. We don't know you." And they started fighting. Like, yeah, yeah. And um, the the idea that you would uh, carry on these intergenerational disputes uh, forever because your grandfather or your great uncle got harmed in this war over yeah. stupid fucking reasons um, does feel silly, especially when you extrapolate it to a sci fi setting um, with space mm-hmm. Romans. Um, and a space federation that's entirely built on the idea of tolerance. Yep, and mutual yeah. understanding. Um, anything else about balance of ta- ter- balance yeah. of Taylor? Balance of <laughs> yeah. Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's a low to the ground balance. Yeah, he had to he had to balance going to college and uh, improving his home. I just meant he was um, short. Yeah, he's little, little, just a little guy. Short king. Uh, uh, he's a short king. Uh, yeah, I, I frequently refer to space battles in the show as dogfights, which I feel like is maybe mm-hmm. too literal. And it's mostly just inherited from Star Wars, where Star Wars is very much focused on, like, emulating... Those are, like, do- I mean, he literally took, like, footage of World War II pilots and was like, you know, 
animate it this way. These are more like submarine battles. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. And this is this is absolutely a submarine battle, especially with them sitting almost out in the open. They can't see each other just because of yeah. like dis- distances and one has cloaking, and cloaking. technology yeah. and one when they're cloaked, they can't see out. And it's like that that very much feels makes it feel like a, a, a submarine fight. Yeah, I, I think that this for something that does not have the atmospherics or the in, the intense budget of the best submarine movies manages to capture that tension of us of a good submarine movie, which is like making you feel like you're completely out of options, and then you realize that if you just like sit and assess the situation in like a strategic way, that like maybe you can um, push your opponent into a mistake that lives gives you a window, um, and that's it's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great episode. Even though Spock's dad dies before he is reincarnated, um, as his dad. As his dad. Um, Man, you think like you think it was kind of like Time's weird. Maybe he couldn't get the ears off, and they're like, "Okay, like as a concession, do you want to come back as a different character?" Because <laughs> at Mark Leonard, you're now living your life uh with those ears mark leonard we're going to talk more about mark leonard because he's actually in another episode we're going to be talking about at some point in the nearish future uh not to ruin it it's the one called Sarek that i sent you from the next generation <laughs> um but uh uh You're he really that's that's kind of hard a uh, hard one to hide the surprise of, of what the show's about there uh for next generation because <laughs> the title is Sarek. Yeah. Uh, hey, do you think Q might be in the episode Deja Q? Do you think Q might be in an episode called Q? <laughs> yeah. Um, but he, uh, Mark Leonard really reminds me of, uh, he's got some Vincent Price acting in this episode, mm-hmm. which I really dig too. Um, so to The Defector, which is one of my favorite Next Generation episodes, but felt like a good time to do it here. I also think like, and I, I didn't realize this. It's kind of considered, I think, the best like Romulan showcase, even though there's a lot of good episodes of Next Generation that feature Romulans. The plot here is the relationship with the Romulan Empire, not say, hey, Romulans are the villains in this like time travel episode or something like that. But it also like it ended up being serendipitously a really good connection to Star Trek Nemesis, because I've said to you many times, Peter, like one of the biggest problems with the, with movie the movie characters of Star Trek The Next Generation versus the television show characters is they're almost unrecognizable from each other. Picard is an action hero and got more and more as an action hero from first contact on, where in the show he's very much like a a considerate, thoughtful diplomat who is trying to make like important decisions and not rush to judgment and definitely not going like, I'm going to go beat me to the Romulan ship so I can punch fucking Tomalak in the face or whatever. Like, you know, it's just a very different thing. And this, I think this actually served as a really good contrast between like, you know, um, movie Picard versus TV Picard with the way he's handling a somewhat similar situation with, uh, with essentially the same space race. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is essentially an episode where, Really, the quick 30-second summation is that the Enterprise finds a a shuttlecraft, a Romulan shuttlecraft racing towards them, uh, being pursued by a Romulan warbird. It's a low – someone who claims – they eventually rescue him. He claims asylum. It's a low – he says he's a low-level, like, uh, you know, stellar cartographer who realized that the Romulans are building a base within the neutral zone, which existed in – at the very beginning, uh, it's in Balance of Terror, exists throughout, which is the area, essentially the demilitarized zone 
uh, equivalent. No one's Romulans in the Federation are not allowed to go in there. Uh, it separates their borders, and they're building a base to launch attacks into the Federation and to start be- taking a more sort of role in uh, in uh, in owning or or, or uh, taking control of the galaxy. And they a lot of the episode is them deciding whether this is a Romulan trick because. Uh, one ways that Romulans would like to declare war is have a bunch of Federation ships go and blow up a base and then go, you went to the neutral zone, you're you're being aggressors towards us, so we're going to be forced to retaliate against you. It's the only way to keep ourselves safe. It's kind of like, you know, U.S. Uh, foreign policy from about 1950 on. But, um, but like, so and eventually they're trying to determine, and they, they eventually are convinced that he's telling the truth. Um... Admiral, uh, his name's, and they they also find out that he's not a low level solar cartography. His name's Admiral Jarak. He was part of the Romulan Council, the military council, and he once he had a kid realized that he didn't want to live in a world with more war and seeing that the Romulans were going to essentially start a war and he had to do the right thing. They eventually believe him and they go into the neutral zone to the base only to find out that there is no base. Uh, and a great twist of this episode is instead of uh, Jarak lying he wasn't lying the romulans realizing that he was trying to be a pacifist fed him false information so that he would go get the federation and have them investigate this area so that they could uh you know essentially take take prisoners of the ship and take the technology and use it to eventually continue a kind of cold war against the federation that's going on and so you know, uh, while they enlist some Klingon help and they get out of their scrape with the Romulans and save the ship, it ends on a real sad note where uh, Admiral Drock realizes that he left his family, you know, exiled himself for, from Romulans for nothing. Yeah. Even though the, the crew's safe, it was it was just a test and he's never going to see his daughter again. And he didn't he didn't go he didn't save his daughter by any action. Um, and he kills himself. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, like credits. Like they find him dead, and it's like executive producer Jerry Taylor or whatever. Like it, you know, you don't have too much time for an ending or a epilogue in these forty minute episodes. But yeah, I this is such a great episode. Great, like really was an episode that a lot of critics said at the time. Like we've talked about how it's not till the third season that Star Trek Next Generation really moved away from goofy episodes and started like having some really strong writing. And this one was written by uh, Ronald Moore, who. Strong Star Trek writer, huge influence on some of the best Star Trek episodes, Deep Space Nine, and then, you know, eventually created, like, For All Mankind and Battlestar Galactica and everything else. But, yeah, just a great, great Next Generation episode. Peter, what did you think about this one? Um, this one was also great. Um, this is uh, one of the best sh- the best episodes I've watched so far. Um, it is a genuine... They really... They build a genuinely complex little mystery machine here. Yeah. Um, not like the Scooby-Doo uh, van um but like a mystery box let's say um yeah i would say they would probably have hover technology but for some reason star trek nemesis they do just drive around on dune buggies so who the fuck knows? <laughs> but um yeah the this they built a beautiful little mystery box here because uh the output of it is this complex sort of messy um and anti-war message but it's a it's an anti-war message that's just about like the nihilism of trying to upkeep these cold war conflicts right yeah like how 
you end up chasing shadows because the intelligence community wanted you to chase shadows and they built entire yeah. camp. They spent millions of dollars to make you go chase shadows and show your ass. Um, yeah. yeah, it's, it's definitely a good allegory for, um, the, the cold war against the Soviets because, um, half of the war was just finding ways to see what sort of like, uh, unforced errors we could, we could yeah. have the, the other side walk into and they yeah. did the same to us. And it was like entire CIA divisions, uh, trying to trick them into like invading a country so that we have an excuse yeah. to like carpet bomb yeah. them. There's uh there, there's like allegories there, but th- because it's Star Trek, it doesn't really map one to one on the. It's good yeah. Star Trek. It doesn't really map one to one on onto those things because you're following Picard. You understand that Picard's uh, motives are pure. Um, that he's like, I need to figure out if this information is actionable or not. I absolutely love the the his. He has like some sort of superior or like yeah. reporting officer. Who's like an admiral? Yeah, he's like, it's like okay, gumshoes. <laughs> like, yeah. He basically sends him like a, a carbon San Diego message, and he's like, I mean, that ends it? up happening a lot in the series. I don't know, there's like, there's some random admiral who's like, you know, he has he has someone who gives him orders too. He's the captain of the Enterprise, but yeah, there is a lot. He's basically I, just like, like, this is your mystery to solve. We can't send any other agents to help. Yeah, 90% of the time when it's an admiral, that admiral is a piece of shit, and I do like that this one's like. Yeah, I mean, you better figure out something. We do. Everyone else is too far away, but also like, hey, whatever decision you make is going to be a big deal. So if you could just for life in the galaxy as we know it, if you could just like really get it right, that would be fantastic for us. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he uh, it's just very funny because like I, I like that he's like trying to report out because that's actually like part of Picard's like responsibilities. Yeah. It's like this is too much for one man to hold on to um however um he does ultimately like make a very wise decision and it still nets them nothing right yeah that wise decision got them net zero yep it actually like is is still sort of an embarrassment for the federation because they still crossed into the neutral zone and and all of that yeah it ends up yeah no one like wins or loses the cold war continues the only thing that happens is the Romulan Empire spent untold amount of like effort, time, money, and resources to destroy a man in their destroy a man's reputation who was advocating for peace. Like, yeah, and and that's such like a the way that episode, like you know, Star Trek, the original series, always ended on a happy note. Like sometimes a crew member died or something like that, but like. Even going back to Balance of Terror when they're like, hey, sorry, your fiance died and now you're not going to get married. And, you know, she's like, I, I do it for the Federation. Like, she's not really all that bummed. Like, she kind of gets what she signed on for. And, like, you know, Next Generation is where they started, especially with, like, some people like uh, Ira Stephen Burr and Ronald Moore and Brandon Braga. Um you know, they started to bring the, the idea of darkness and nuance. Like, we covered that in the fact that, like, when they did The Best of Both Worlds and uh, and Picard gets assimilated by the Borg, like, they didn't just go about adventures the next week. And, and they the writers had to fight to let, you know, Rick Berman and, and, and Paramount let them do an episode where they just are like, hey, let's sit with the trauma for one episode of what happened to this. This is the first season and maybe even the first episode where they really are like – of like Star Trek period, like end of story where they're like, 
exploring the idea that every ending isn't happy. Like, and happy in a very personal, depressing way. Because the first two seasons of Star Trek, even the darker ones, like a Q-Who or something like that, like, it still seems to end on, like, a, hey, you found out more about the galaxy. It's kind of scary out there. Sorry, 17 people died. Or Tashi R dying, like, okay, it's weird that they died from an oil monster, but she's going to say a lovely goodbye to all of her friends. And having, like, someone who lost everything, gained nothing, and, and made no lasting contribution to anything, except he's never going to be able to see his family again, uh, commit suicide is a... There wasn't an episode like this. Yeah. And I and I think that the important thing to keep in mind is like a nineteen a nineteen sixties audience, uh they were what they were balancing up against is that like um producers wanted uh escapism. Yeah. And they wanted like, you know, maybe a bit of moralizing, but they wanted like something that a whole family could tune into and not get mad at each other about. Um, but then the writers were like, no, we want to have something to say. And they have this fight. And very often the, like, these happy endings or these stuck on sort of like moralizing endings were because like producers were like, all right, you can do that. But at the end, yeah. you have to, you have to hem it in. In, it, it does make the original series kind of anodyne at times, sometimes in a very comforting way. Um, like, and yeah. I particularly love the way it looks, but it, it can make the, it where it, it all feels very safe. It all feels like it's like, you know, yeah. at the end of the day, you know, you know, Kirk is going to come up with the best answer. There's a couple episodes where, like, he comes up with kind of a morally gray answer that you have to sit with that are just beautiful, like beautiful hours of television. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but um, largely, you know, next week they're going to be bouncing, bouncing around and talking about their next shore leave or whatever <laughs> in TNG. Uh, they It really adds bite and it really makes sense in, in the 90s era to have a few episodes go awry <laughs> or have a few episodes yeah. go uh where it's like what do you, what do you learn like nothing there's nothing to yeah. learn everything fucking sucks i did everything right <laughs> and a man's life was destroyed yep like and i think that's good to have that because it adds actual stakes even to the episodes that have happy endings that yeah. the episodes that have happy endings if you know that the show can like slap you around a little bit in the last uh, last act yeah um it, it gives them a, it gives them more impact right yeah um the other thing um that i'm curious your take you know even rewatching, i was like wait how does this end up because i know like i kind of remembered it's been a while since i'd seen this i also like think this really works well as a mystery because you really like you are in picard's head of like having all the same facts that he has like, you don't see, like, a secret, you know, subspace communication that Jarek does at some point that gives you information as an audience member that Picard, as a as a character in the show, doesn't have. You have all the same information, and it is, like, it is a mystery where you're trying to figure out, like, is this guy telling the truth, and what should they do? And I really like the way it, it puts you in Picard's, like, mental space of, like, I don't know the right answer here as an audience member either, and I have all the same information and it, it plays with that so many times, like leans towards this guy's telling the truth. This guy's not telling the truth. And like, were you like caught up in the mystery? Were you surprised of where it ended? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great mystery box because uh, I figured at the end it would just be either. Yeah, he's a betrayer. He's 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 a betrayer or he's a, or he's a true defector. Either way, yeah. Picard would probably lean the wrong direction a little bit before getting slapped on the wrist getting the and right then direction. Yeah. racing back to the to the to the direction of virtue and truth right yeah. um instead it's like 
Well, no, I just covered my ass in case this guy's lying to me. Yeah. <laughs> and he wasn't. Like, yeah. He was being lied to. Yeah. yeah. It's it's a great, like, third option that you weren't considering being the solution to And this. I don't think Picard really considered it either. No. So, uh, yeah, uh, I do. I did, absolutely got pulled into the mystery. Absolutely works. Uh, I do like the um, the way that the individual crew members respond to this person because it's not really racially motivated, though in some ways Worf can't help but be baited. Um, oh, yeah, because, like, I mean, Romulans and, and Klingons hate each other. Yeah, and they have had, some space. They've had racism. more recent skirmishes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, and Worf can't help but be um, kind of triggered by this guy's presence. Um, and he, but he has the wherewithal and the the wisdom of Worf to know to pull pull his shit out um, and get the fuck out of there when he when he needs to. So that's pretty. I mean, I mean, I think that's that's um, part of the the charm of this show is that they actually do, like. I have a good bead on who the characters are in the show. Uh, but as we're going to yeah. talk about Nemesis, I'm just like, yeah, I guess Data did that. It's pretty weird for Data to do that, but I guess that's what Data does. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, one, the, I'm glad we watched these two because, like, as I was watching The Defector, I was like, man, this is such a good episode of television. And that's essentially been my experience as I started <laughs> to dip into my favorite list, too. And I'm like, this, like, these next three weeks are going to be so good and I'm so excited for Peter to see so many good episodes like I'm really psyched about it. Um and I'm glad that was your reaction to Defector because Defector is one of those episodes that if it, I hadn't found a, a place for it here, I probably would have figured out a way a place for it in like my favorite list and stuff. That being said, in order to get to all the good stuff that we will have over the next 3 weeks, we have to talk about maybe the worst next generation thing that exists. Peter you ready to talk about Star Trek Nemesis? Yes, but not in detail. <laughs> Star Trek Nemesis. He's not very good in this. They call him Tom Hardly. Yeah, he 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 is trying hardy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah he's he, a try, uh, try hardy. <laughs> well, what's funny is that he was really devastated by this is his first big movie role. Tom Hardy plays the villain. He's a very baby Tom hardy in this movie and he was somewhat devastated by the reaction and then no one wanted to cast him uh and it wasn't till uh he like didn't he didn't audition for a while and uh it wasn't till he really got committed to the idea of doing bronson in 2008 which was kind of his movie that rebroke him out into the world and made him a eventually made him a big movie star with uh, all the different offers and reviews that came from that movie but yeah, this this movie sounds like it was a real, real tough for him because everyone hated it and it didn't make any money. And uh, this was like his big break. So thank God he came back. Yeah. And I certainly don't blame him for this. Uh, I, I certainly don't blame him for this movie at all. Weirdly, I only blame him and LeVar Burton. I don't know why. It's, <laughs> uh, no, I, bl- I, I blame Rick Berman and Stuart Baird. Uh, Rick Berman I don't blame Tom can... Hardy for this. Uh, I no, think I, no. I think his performance gets unfairly. It's 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 not you know it's not quite a. I think his performance script. is fine. He's got a terrible character and a horrible script. His performance is fine. Yeah, they asked him to at some at some point they asked him to do an accent that sort of approximates Picard, but. The thing is, Patrick Stewart is like... He probably loved that shit. 
A southern, southern. He's like, I could do an accent. That's his whole thing. Yeah, but he's like, uh, but but um, uh, you know, Picard is more of like a su- southern England, like more refined kind of guy. Yeah. And uh, and uh, Tom Hardy is like Cockney, rough and tumble street guy, right? Like the 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 uh, accent that he's trying to do here um, is fine, but. It's certainly the performance that they're asking him to pull off and the obviously just completely checked out director just leads to a sort of thing where like, you're like, okay, the villain's not good, but the villain is not the iconographic, like, meme bad thing about this movie at all. The way that like, I've seen the internet I, display and I've seen Trek nerds talk, yeah. talk about, he's not worth laughing. He's not worth laughing about. No. No, he's definitely not. He does not sink the movie. Everything else sinks the movie. Um, the, the fact that um, Data has a clone called B4 and B4. that they end the movie just basically uh, destroying Data's sacrifice. Um, despite well, the fact let, let's, that, let's talk that Brent Spiner was trying to get out of the role. Yeah, um, yeah let's, let's talk about that, that. They put him in a different body. Put Data's soul in well, a different body. So I'm going to get into that. So yes, Tom Tom Hardy, not his fault. I do think again, not to get into Cinema Sins territory criticism here. We have a lot to criticize. That's actually talks about the movie and not stupid things. But it is funny that he's trying to do a Patrick Stewart accent because I don't know if you know about this about accents, Peter. They're not genetic. They are usually and uh, Picard, of course, famously from France. Clearly, at some point, England won that war <laughs> because he has a, he doesn't have a yeah. French accent. He has a <laughs> he has a British accent. Um, but uh, I don't think there's just, well, yeah, we all know the sequel is a hundred and one year war. Yeah, there was another one. <laughs> they, they got the last year in later on, and then uh, uh, British people. Now, I'm sure I'm sure this show really irritated French people, but. Uh, I do think it's funny that he tried to do a Picard accent because why he should be doing a, a Riemann accent. That's not how accents work. But yeah, let's talk about how this movie. He should be doing literally be. anything that is is compelling. Yeah, I mean he's he's good. He he definitely seems angry at Picard. Is there any reason for him to be that angry at Picard? Not really. His entire plan is fucking stupid. Like, that's the thing. is like, you realize, if you can criticize Tom Hardy all you want, you realize it wasn't Tom Hardy's, the actor's decision to be like, what if my character, for no reason, wants to go blow up Earth. Like, (laughs) he didn't come up with that. Someone else came up with that. But let's get into it. So, yeah, this uh, Star Trek Insurrection was not a successful movie. Um, It came out in 1998. On quickly on the heels of the very successful Star Trek First Contact. And it took a little bit to get made. And it essentially what's funny is that, like, when you look at movies that came out in 1998, which is stuff like Lost in Space, the Godzilla, Roland Emmerich Godzilla movie, and you flash forward to 2002 and this movie comes out, I think you're just, like, in a completely different blockbuster cinema landscape as well, right? Like... You, you have Lord of the Rings, you have the, the Raimi Spider-Man movies, like, things are changing a little bit for, like, what kind of, and, like, the end of the 90s was really kind of this dearth, dearth of, like, these big blockbuster movies. Like, there was big blockbusters like Titanic, but it wasn't, like, the action, sci-fi, comic book type adventure that you saw today. And, and like, anything, like, seriously, go look at the top 25 grossing movies of 1998 and you'll laugh because of how silly it is. And how silly some of those movies are and that you're like, oh, shit, I did watch that as a kid. That was one of the biggest movies of that year. Um, 
and you know, so you, you they waited a long time, and part of it was that like they didn't think Star Trek Insurrection was all that successful, so they had this idea of like let's do two more movies. We're gonna do one more, and then we're gonna do like a big ending. Everyone's kind of getting old. We'll do a big big ending for the next generation's cast in the fifth movie, and then they're like maybe we'll start making like Deep Space Nine, Voyager, or like combine everyone type movies or something like that. Jonathan Frakes was not asked to direct. He directed First Contact and Insurrection. He says there was like, at the time that this movie came out, there was a, um, or the the kind of mutually agreed upon Paramount Jonathan Frank's line, because obviously he's still in the movies, like, I'm making my own movies now. I think he was doing Clock Stoppers or, or something at the time. It was like, I'm too busy making that. I don't have time to direct that. <laughs> Later on, you figure he, he said that... the Clock Stoppers device to do both, but... Yeah, I don't know if you know this, Peter. That was a movie, too. So, that, no, you couldn't do that. Uh... That movie, ironically, also Tom Hardy's fault. Um, uh, but later on, he said that, well, actually, they didn't ask. And if they would have asked, I would have had time and I would have loved to do it. Um, so there's also a lot of, like, initial animosity, it sounds like, like, as cast members have reflected on this from the fact that, like, they loved working with Jonathan Franks. He's a very, at least, competent Star Trek director he knows all the characters very well and at least has a vested interest in telling a compelling story rick berman was unhappy with the direction of a noted star trek villain rick berman was unhappy with insurrection unhappy with the box office returns and he was a huge fan of the other two the only other two movies that uh, Stuart baird directed do you know what those are peter uh executive decision and u.s marshals well you definitely looked at your notes for that one (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but yeah he Rick was, like, was a was huge fucker i know it, it he was a huge fan of those movies two movies that no one today thinks are like good like i, I, I think, think i think u.s marshals is good it's i it's haven't seen it since the fugitive theaters. if you watch it yeah. i've seen i've seen it a few times if you watch it not right after the fugitive it's a pretty good movie um if you watch okay. it immediately after the fugitive you're like what is this um i really like u.s Marshals. yeah the executive decision is only good because it makes one or two very audacious audacious choices. Yeah. <laughs> I am aware of those. I have not seen Executive Decision. I always Executive Decision is like pops up on HBO Max on like a lazy Saturday and I'm like, should I watch this and not, not really pay attention? And I I've never I've never got out of even though I like I like the one crazy decision that I am the twist thirty minutes in that I'm aware of. And I like obviously Kurt Russell quite a bit but like that's why he was chosen rick berman's like we need an action we need to forget about star trek lore which again the star trek gener- generation uh, uh star trek next generation movies are really about like let's make star trek movies for people that don't like star trek and like they kind of did get that right but you don't get that right in the fourth movie of the second star trek the next generation series like you do have to do some sort of soft reboot no one no one who's not invested in these characters and somewhat is going out to see these movies. And like, also you again are still kind of doubling down on this idea that, that Patrick Stewart and data are essentially the two leads of star Trek, which worked for the TOS movies because uh, Kirk McCoy and Spock were the leads of star Trek TOS and everyone else was supporting characters Next Generation, and when you watch all the episodes we're about to watch, Peter, you really see, yes, Picard and Data are, like, very memorable characters and have a lot, Picard especially, but it is a show about the crew, and there's there's fo- different focal points in different episodes. It really was a true ensemble show, 
Um, and the movies kind of decided after the first one, like actually data and Picard are the leads. <laughs> and um, some of that and, was because Frakes was more busy behind the camera than in front of it. Um, yeah. But, they still gave everyone interesting things to do. And this movie, like jo- uh, LeVar Burton, Marina S- uh, Sertris, like to this day, talk about how frustrated they were with what they gave their characters to do. Like they get it. And like Michael Dorn, especially was like, they literally, it's like, he didn't, it's like Stuart Barrett cut out everything I was doing and like, didn't give me a justification from being there um, or anything else that comes from it. So it's, it like the, the cast and the crew hated this movie, but it was a huge flop. It still is the lowest grossing Star Trek movie of all time. It didn't even make its budget back. The only Star Trek movie that didn't open number one at the box office, it opened number two and then quickly sank. And, uh, and on top of that, you had Brett Spiner who actually wanted to be killed in first contact. For the same reason he wanted to be killed in Nemesis. He's like, I'm supposed to play an ageless android, and I am aging. Like, I don't look like Data anymore. And the sooner you kill me, so I don't have to look, why is Data getting old? The sooner I die. You noted that the way they do this is really lazily introducing another android, even though Next Generation already has lore. Like, you have a character that could be good to bring back on the big screen with his evil brother lore. Yep. They don't do it for... And they don't even mention it, really. They don't mention noting... lore. They don't mention... No. They don't mention um, Alexander uh, Super Supercat or whatever. The who's, the who's the guy that invented Data and lore? Oh, uh... uh no, they do. Super they Trump? do... No, they do mention... Why am I forgetting his name? Um, uh, uh, Nuni, uh, uh Dr. Soon. Yeah. They do mention him because they they joke that they le- that which is the only like passing reference to lore is that well that B four uh, fits Doctor Soong's uh, 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 idea of humorous names for his androids like Picard says that yeah yeah, yeah. so they do mention the Doctor that created him but they don't yeah. mention lore or use lore which would have made a ton of sense yeah yeah so. Um, I think this movie's biggest crime and why I actually don't plan on doing like a full two hour dissection on this movie yeah. um, is because it's it, it's fundamentally a movie driven by making as few decisions as possible. Um, it's a movie yeah. that is fundamentally about sort of maintaining a status quo, having sequences that don't change the status quo even within the movie's context characters don't die characters don't seem to suffer much and then and then right around the end they sacrifice data they kill the bad guy they kill the bad guy's friends and then it's over there doesn't yeah. seem to be there's any... no justification besides like oh this would be a moment like this doesn't uh... shake its own status quo it's a movie entirely about just coasting and coasting and coasting through set pieces and it's, yeah it, 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 and like moments that are supposed to be big and dramatic end up just being side little detours to get exactly back where you were five fucking minutes ago yeah well and i think you know if you remember first contact you can see where data could have died in that movie right he's pretending the borg queen he's on his side he saves the day he gets caught up in the the warp chamber gases and it like, it kills them. Like, but he saves the day and he allows them. Like, that's at least something of a heroic death. And this is so stupid because it is like uh, Picard could have handled it, but I'm going to come so I can save him for a second. And then I go, oops, I guess I got to. Like, there's just no stakes and it's a bad movie all the way up to it. And, like, you're right. Everything feels like, oh, we got to 
we have to kill off data because we he he wants to so we'll do it but it doesn't make any sense <laughs> yeah really. oh yeah that yeah. he only has one device and then okay so here here's here's an example of what i was talking about so data has one device uh that's like a portable that, transporter yeah portable transporter no one has to he, beat me up you just press the button there's a big dramatic sequence where picard teleports onto the enemy ship the teleporter dies. LeVar Burton says, Listen, we can't use this again. Data has a big dramatic moment where he jumps through the vacuum of space to get to the ship that uh, Picard is on so he can join up with him. They have a big escape that has absolutely no effect on the plot. Yep. At one point during the escape, um, Data shows Picard that he has one little portable transporter guy. Then he says, no, we'll leave together. They steal a ship. They get out of their ship. They get back to their ship. No impact on the plot. Between no. there and later when they pull this little transporter out, at no point does Data say, Are there, is there a second one of these? Or It's actually, we have replicators that can make parts appear like magic. It's really easy to make. Like, we have transporters all over the ship. It's, why can't theoretically, just... if they've invented portable transporter technology... It should be very easy to make more. But this is this is the sort of thing that this movie is is all about, which is just like, um, we're going to show you our hand and we don't really care because when the moment comes later, um, we think you stupid fucking idiots are going to eat it up like slop. <laughs> and like the, 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 the problem here is is like, it's not just that the movie wastes your time. Like this movie genuinely could be 40 minutes shorter if they got rid of detours that solve nothing. And interesting, and just in case I get back to this, the original cut was an hour longer and they cut out anything that was approaching a character or a side, like any sort of moment. So I'm not saying there's a good cut of this, but they essentially like took all the things that you like about Star Trek, which is not space action against villains you don't care about. It's these you know seven crew members and they cut all of that out all of the like lines of levity all of the different character building moments all the different interactions between other members of the crew and he then Stuart bard cut all that out to focus more on like the remits and the and tom hardy's villain character so again i'm not saying there's a good version of this but i guarantee there's there's probably good scenes or more interesting scenes that at least would have would have made it a Star Trek Insurrection level movie that's like because Star Trek Insurrection has a lot of like charming character moments, even if it serves absolutely nothing and the plot's not interesting enough to carry you through. This is like, how about no character moments whatsoever? Except, I don't know, people getting mind raped. That could be fun. Yeah, this movie actually technically does have uh, about five minutes of lighthearted Star Trek goofing about at the very beginning for Troy... For, for 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 Troy and Riker's wedding. And there's jokes about how they're going to have a second ceremony on Beta Z. And in that ceremony, everything is nude. And there's jokes yep. about about certain members of the, of the group being self-conscious about their body. And Picard makes <laughs> yep. a joke. He's like, I'll be in the gym. Yeah. Um like that, that is, yeah, that that, that is, is the that's the best part. That that is the best part of the movie. Also, it's that's indicating a in the direction of what the show did well. It's not doing it well, but it's no. indicating in the direction of what the show did well. And it's it's fun to like as you watch. Part of the reason why in the the twelve episodes we're going to watch in my favorite, I structured them in order because the one thing you do note is that these people become more and more friendly to each other, and they feel more like friends as opposed to just work people as the series goes on. And so, like. 
them being, you know, in the same way like Star Trek Generations starts with that wharf ceremony where they're promoting him on the holodeck with the ship, this has a lot of that stuff that that has the cadence of of that. Um, and also the Beta Z nude weddings was a joke in the next generation. Anytime uh, Troy's mom came on board and was like looking for a husband and talked about the nude weddings and stuff like that. So it was also kind of like a funny thing for actual truck fans to go, oh, yeah, they've always said that Betazoids have nude weddings and now they're all going to go to one. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, um, <laughs> the funny thing about watching the, the original, uh, the TNG, is that I have been just with watching the movies, I have been more forgiving of the bad banter, the bad character moments. Yeah. Because I'm like, at least it's that versus the series has never really been good at action sequences. They've had they've had their moments, but like series has never really been that good at action sequences. Um, which I'll get to a point there in a moment about how Stuart Baird was hired as an action director and every action sequence in this is fucking incompetent. Um but um the the, the I'm like more forgiving of like the corny corny kind of completely artificial sort of dead-eyed joy joyfulness that the first you know the prologue of this movie has with picard just sort of like hanging out with his crew like i'm more forgiving of that but then i watched the original show and i was like no the show actually like it would have like corny line readings but like it felt yeah. genuine like the poker scene with data and all of them hanging out like yeah that would in the movies, that would be incredibly corny, and and even in First Contact, a movie I quite like, a lot of that stuff is corny, like when they're all drunk. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, it's, yeah. it's like, you know, a lot of it is corny in the movies, but in the show is actually, like, very grounded and, like, kind of... It's 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 believably cute. I I am more forgiving of that stuff in the movies as this cornball version of it because it's at least indicating at the thing that I like. It's it, it, like it's at least pointed in the correct direction, which Frakes was good at. Like even if Frakes couldn't yeah. nail the the right atmosphere, he could at least be like, I've like these are the characters, this... and here's the characters doing the yeah. things that you actually remember loving them doing. It's not about watching Picard pick up a rifle and blow away a bunch of orcs. Yeah. Well, and also, like, even though, like, I actually think that wedding scene, which is the best scene in the movie, is also something that, like, speaks to the general disdain for caring about anything Star Trek, right? Like, so you, there's two things that happen because of the script writers that did care about Star Trek in that scene. One, you have two characters that you know had a romance prior to the show that occasionally, every once in a while, would hook up on the show, but usually not that end up falling in love in the previous movies and they're getting married. It's a, you know, there's there's not a Ross and Rachel in the Star Trek universe except those two. And they, you know, the the show itself had them as past lovers who have moved on. And you know, one of the things that's kind of we talked about like it feeling rushed for insurrection, but one thing that's kind of cute at least thematically the way they get together is insurrection. Insurrection is all about like getting old and deciding what's important to you. So it would make sense that these two people who you know, have been together since they were literally in, you know, the Star Trek version of college, like, and known each other and used to date that may, and who have, have worked together and formed even deeper bonds uh, through this, this working relationship and this friendship that they have, like, would decide, like, hey, we're no spring chickens. Maybe we've had, we, we should just be together type thing. So, you know, it's like, in theory, you could make that a big moment to start off. It also as we talked about, has some thematic connection to Balance of Terror, the first Romulan-related thing, and that that also starts with a wedding where the captain is 
is marrying two members of the crew. Here's the part, like, so in theory, that's a something interesting to start a Star Trek movie. People were pissed about that. I'm I, I was annoyed rewatching it too for a couple reasons. One, um, it brings back two characters that didn't get much chance to be in the show. Wesley Crusher, who you probably saw was there, and like you were probably like, is he going to say anything or have a scene? Yeah, he did. It was all cut out. Tons of the scene that because that I remember yeah. noticing that I was like I was like he's yeah. in the opening credits. What is going on here? Yeah, I mean he. I mean, which makes sense. He, um, we're not actually going to go through kind of the Wesley arc, but he leaves the show in the fourth season. He shows up as a guest star and eventually, and in Starfleet Academy, eventually quits Starfleet Academy and goes and follows this character who had been on a few episodes called the Traveler because he was so smart and stuff like that. So he like literally disappeared in season seven. So him being back is kind of cool and could have had something about that would have been maybe interesting to fans of the show when all of a sudden this character who disappeared to go literally mind explore the universe Mm -hmm. with this like advanced species is just back and clapping at the wedding it also brings back Guinan who hadn't been back from generations and had not been in the seventh season of the show either for her to say like one or two lines and then the part that really annoyed fans and annoyed me too like oh yeah they did that so they have Worf, who everyone's like, Worf, why are you here? Why are you back in a Starfleet uniform? So some minor spoilers for Deep Space Nine. I think you – do you know that Worf joined the cast of Deep Space Nine in season four after Next Generation was over? They uh, kind of mention yeah, it all the time yeah, in these yeah. movies because yeah. they're like – Because in he, Insurrection, have, I got – And First Contact. Yeah. I, I got confused. I was like – I was like, doesn't he have, like, shit that's, like, there's, like, a war going on? Like, does he have shit to do? Yeah. At this point, Deep Space Nine is over, though. And the Deep Space Nine ending is a great finale of television. I don't think it's quite All Good Things episode, but, like, the Deep Space Nine ending reflects the tone of that show. It's called All You Leave Behind. And it's essentially about all the main characters separate for the most part, like, and going about other things for a variety of reasons. And Worf's big thing is that he has the tough choice because the Klingon and the Klingon Empire is a huge factor in the back half of DS9. And he takes this leap to kind of go and say, I'm going to leave Starfleet and become an ambassador and, and go back and join the Klingon Empire. I've finally been accepted by the Klingons again and you know which was always my challenge being raised by human parents I'm ready to go back this movie has a throwaway line because they have him in a Starfleet uniform where he's like drunk at the table that someone's like Worf weren't you like didn't you go become an ambassador and he's like it didn't take and it's like oh cool that's so that entire yeah like so people were understandably pissed like sure bring him back to this movie and then of course he has absolutely nothing to do in the movie which michael dorn was annoyed about too but now you bring him back you're covering fire yeah a couple times uh but like you literally bring him back and then like have a throwaway line about like taking away this like essentially four-year arc on this much superior show with this melancholy ending and he's like yeah i guess i'm back in starfleet now (laughs) like i mean people were annoyed i'm thinking about again like i i've I've reached the point in my life where i can like a lot of things like oh if that's stupid it's just non-canon to me in my head i don't have to be obsessed about that it ruined an ending it it didn't i can just ignore this movie like i have for most of my life but you can understand why it's like oh like so you have this scene that sets up this movie that is the best scene in the movie has all these fan service things on paper 
that then they go, this doesn't matter. Yeah, let's cut all the scenes of Wesley Crusher talking. Who cares about him? And oh yeah, Worf, he's back because he the everything you cared about didn't matter. So yeah, let's go. Like so, anyone who's a Star Trek, like again, you shouldn't make your. I understand wanting to appeal to fans and new people. It's a good way to expand, especially in 2002 when Star Trek wasn't at its most popular at the time. But the also the worst way to do this is start your movie alienating everyone. <laughs> um, and that's that's kind of what this opening scene does in a way. The other thing I need to talk about that just is so like, what is this? Is Stuart Bard wanted to have a, a chase scene on an alien planet in Cars. I don't think I've seen a... Uh, I, there's probably something like a car in some Star Trek movie. But they make a huge deal over this new piece of equipment. I, I don't even care about the name. I'm not going to look it up because it doesn't matter. It's like a and Picard does... Shit. Yeah, yeah. Picard does something that Picard never did in the show. Which is like, I'm going to... He does the Kirk thing where I'm going to beam down to the planet. Even though I'm not supposed to. He never did that on the show. He always let... Riker and the away team go do it because the captain's supposed to is the the ship. They make a stupid joke about you just want to drive the scorpion around, which is a fucking dune buggy. They drive around in the dune buggy. They find all the pieces to put together uh, a new data, and then they get chased by no one that you know who are also driving car like just fucking like Ford excursions dune buggy defied like. And that's like the first big action sequence, and you like, Peter, you've been you've been Star Trek pilled enough to be. I'm sure you were like, "What the fuck is this? Why yeah, is everyone having a yeah. car okay, chase?" So, so here's the thing: <clears throat> the hair yeah. guy who's an action director, and let's say he's a competent action director, right? Yeah. Um, he made two movies that are remembered among action fans to some degree as existing, as existing. Neither is particularly warmly remembered, but both of them are, have been seen by action fans. Can't deny it. I can't deny it. I like U.S. Marshals. I'll say that. I, I don't remember um, hating it. I saw it in theaters. I just you should watch it. Like, no connect. You should watch it as, like, an afternoon, Sunday afternoon dad movie. Um, both. Of, I don't remember either of those movies being particularly incompetent. In this scene, it has a few issues. One is to make the alien planet look less like... I'm guessing that in production, the alien planet just looked like the wisconsin dells or some shit um because they uh they they do put the fucking the like fucking fast and furious filter yeah, yeah. yes they, cr- they they cranked up the contrast they did something very cheap to make it look like it's like the scorched radioactive planet or something and uh they <laughs> something happened in production where they were like this does not look like an alien planet and uh, someone's like i just saw the christina aguilera dirty music video can we make the contrast look like that? Yes. And so uh, I want to say something else here. So you, when you're making an action sequence, particularly in somewhere that's semi-anonymous, like a desert, the whole point of a desert, right, is like, and why deserts are cool to shoot sequences in for particularly like, I, like in Good and Bad and the Ugly, he gets abandoned out in the desert, is that unless you have a compass or something, you don't know if you're walking in circles because it's very hard to orient. There's very little foliage, mm-hmm. whatever. This movie treats that like it's not a given, and it's just people fucking around on dune buggies for a while until the sequence is over. Um, there's no sense of direction. Yeah. There's no sense of, of danger. There's no sense of, of uh, oh, 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 they almost caught up. Like, there's none of that. Who are of, those like, people? 
Why yeah. are they chasing them? Also, like, again, like, there's this whole big thing about, like, you just want to try out the newest of Federation technology. And then they get, which is a car. And then they get chased by eight random Tuscan Raiders also driving Jeeps with guns on their back. It's like, where, what cool new fe- technology <laughs> Federation when this random planet has Tuscan Raiders with Jeep Wranglers? Like, what, <laughs> like, what the hell? I mean, it's, yeah, it's so have- bad. Like, it is. It's so bad for it's for like nothing. Uh, it's cool that Picard now has access to the same technology that Charlie Manson had when he and the Manson yeah. family were living in Death Valley. Yeah, <laughs> same valley. I think those maybe those were the Mansons that chased them. <laughs> like it's it's so it, it is so low rent and it speaks to the rest of the movie. While we're here, I'll talk about the other action sequences because I don't want to talk about them later. Um, there's two or three sequences where the crew all picks up uh rifles and are shooting or whatever and Classic the thing star. that strikes me about this movie and strikes me about a lot of star trek shows and is that um it's like if everybody was a stormtrooper yeah like everybody is just sort of wildly firing until the scene has gone on long enough that the editor is like all right i guess Worf nails a shot um <laughs> Like that, it's it is so, it is so clumsy and directionless and floppy. And this is something that I could tolerate in like the '60s show, but like eventually, if I if you show me a shot of Picard pointing a gun straight at a guy, and then the shot seventeen shots miss in a row, I'm gonna stop paying attention to the sequence until it's over. I'm just gonna be like, yeah, I guess those three guys are dead. Where are we going now? Yeah, well, and also just one of the things that's like, and this, like, it, it, this worked in Star Trek First Contact where, like, you are, you had a limited amount of times to fire your phasers because they would adapt and they'd, you know, they, they'd attune to the frequency. And, like, they don't use, they, they have that one scene of, like, the mountain escape where they're using, like, bullets. But part of the problem with, like, that in general and, and like, the rifles they did introduce in First Contact, and I think that would be, like, where the action sort of went right before it went really wrong is that, like, in Star Wars or other space stuff, they have, like, space pistols and, like, they shoot space bullets, like, laser bullets. Phasers are, like, a continuous stream. And so they, like, invented a rifle that theoretically is less efficient because, like, if I shoot you with a bullet, Peter, or, like, a, a laser bullet... um, if I miss, I then have to shoot again and hope that one connects with you. If I have, say, like an a lightsaber that goes on for infinity, <laughs> you know, in one direction, I could be like swiping that thing until I get you very easily. It's yeah. very easy to do. And they somehow have downgraded their weapons. And then the other frustrating thing they do, which, again, made more sense in first contact and then really like gets away from this is like part of the thing I like about Star Trek is that. They rarely, like, the couple times someone sets a phaser to kill, they usually chastise them, and it's a big deal. Like, they're like, yes, there is a kill setting on the phasers, but we use stun. Why wouldn't you? We are not executioners. We are not space police. You use stun, you put them in a safe situation, and you get them back. And, like, in the movie version, this one especially, they're like, yeah, they're just space guns. We use them to kill people with our space guns. And everyone has them. And they, they go and they try to shoot the people and kill them. Like, that is just, like, not a part of 
of Star Trek. Like, and again, like to its core ethics, the idea, like you saw this in, in the defector a little bit and you'll see this more in a few other ones. Like they aren't like, Oh fuck the Romulans. We better kill them. They are like, let's figure out how to negotiate a peace. Let's, let's help this ship that's stranded just because they're, you know, who cares that they're Romulans? We're here to help. It's the idea of like having some level of moral, moral idea of like life and death and other species having value and like diplomacy and peace is more important and stuff like that. And in the movies, they're like, we got space guns. And it's just like, it's, it's so stupid. The other thing I really hate, like, so you could say, yeah, it's a bad action sequence. And yeah, there's all these like bad fan service moments, but like, you could say like if they got the core, if they like were able to in some way reproduce or reproduce the like, Khan versus Kirk dynamic that they're clearly going for, maybe you have something. You have two very capable actors. But the scene where you, he meets Tom Hardy is so funny because they spend 20 minutes on it. And it's Tom, it's basically Picard. He just met this guy. He finds out it's this clone because he looks just like him as a kid. Um, and that he's taken over. He's from, you learn about the Remans, everything we already share. And they have a 20 minute discussion where Picard is like, great. You're have you were you have the same genetics as me, and so you under hopefully you understand like I do that peace is so important and and like they're kind of both trying to convince each other that the the two Picards can lead to a better way, and then Picard leaves that meeting and goes yeah I don't believe him at all he's kind of full of shit like he th- that idea of a Picard clone having some sort of like making Picard make bad decisions or not seeing that he's being like tricked or having some sort of, I don't know, dramatic stakes from a character perspective. They immediately are like, we've spent a lot of time on this meeting and, and Tom Hardy walks away going, well, I just wanted to meet him, but I have a plan to blow up earth. And Patrick Stewart or Picard walks away going, yeah, he's full of shit. He doesn't really want to be my friend. So let's invest. It's like, what was the point of all that? Like, yeah. there was not anything there. So the thing I was talking about at the beginning, the central thesis, that the movie is just about stasis. Like, it's about returning yeah. to the status quo. There, it did bother me quite a bit that uh, he has Kirk in his clutches twice. And Picard. it's not that he fumbles the ball and lets him escape. It's that Kirk is allowed to leave willingly. His name His name is Picard. Uh, sorry. He has Picard in his, it is in his clutches. Yeah. Picard is allowed to leave willingly, and then Picard ends up on the ship again and is allowed to leave willingly, and then the third time he comes back, Picard just blows everybody away and has a fist fight with his younger, uh, cooler self. Yeah. And that's, yeah. Well, because yeah, you that's... Fi- it's insane, even in the point in the movie, because what you find out why he needs to go find Picard, why this whole thing, it's not just a personal vendetta, it's that he was... He was cloned to infiltrate the Federation. How dumb that is, is, is whatever. Let's not even talk about how stupid that is. It was a plan. But eventually the scientists <laughs> I mean, who the, made the him, Romulans did dispose of it, right? They were like, I don't yeah, want to do that. Yeah, like, this is a stupid one. That was a really stupid plan. <laughs> also, like, at the time that they would have done this, he wasn't the captain of the Enterprise. He was just a captain of one of their tiny ships, the Stargazer. So, like... I mean, they really just picked a random guy and, and, and decided to die in and hope he didn't die and hope he got promoted to a meaningful spot or something later hope on. Hope he like, didn't again. quit quit the uh, uh, quit uh, you know the Federation in one of the dozen of episodes so far where I, I've talked about where he discusses t- leaving the Federation. 
I know they they really must like we didn't see that scene where they abandoned the project, but I imagine it's like uh, John Cleese or Graham Chapman just walking into the Romulan scientist and being like, "All right, it's gotten way too silly. We're putting an end to it." So and they ship him off to the the prison planet. But the thing is, is that he has like some genetic sequencing built into it because they're like, obviously, at least they address the fact that well, if you clone him, won't they notice he's forty years? Younger, <laughs> like how, how are you gonna how are you gonna make that work? Um, oh, but oh, they really have quickly, really quickly. Yeah. So because he has some sort of so gene to make his age jump forty years. Well, that's later, what I mean. Yeah, that um, it'll start. It'll start rapidly escalating until he's the same age. But those scientists are dead, so now they just need John Luke Picard's genetic material. So he does like the whole point is he does need to kill Picard to continue to live. Yes, and sure, whatever. Uh, but why would you let him leave? Yeah, why, why would you, you talk to him about, and, and like bluff him out about whether you're a good guy or not? Just fucking shoot him in the face, and take his genetic material, and go do your other stupid plan. You're, like you already also think that the ship that you're on is unbeatable. Like, what do we? Well, what that's we the thing because that again, it's it's the worst crime a movie can do, which is why you didn't think that was a problem. Star Trek Into Darkness has this problem. A million times, too. And we'll, we'll definitely talk about that. But the reason why you as an audience member are somewhat theoretically engaged in that meeting between those the two Picards is because you as an audience member don't know about the um, genetic expansion that's going to require him to kill Picard and take his DNA. So because you don't know that as an audience member – you buy that, okay, maybe this was like a little punk kid who wanted to meet his clone before he shows him up in battle. But the problem is 30 minutes later when you get revealed the information that, oh, he has to kill Picard and take his genetic thing to continue to live. Now that scene doesn't work at all because once you as an audience member understand the full picture, it completely destroys why he would ever – like you You look back and go, well, that was extreme. Now he does a bunch of baffling, stupid things now that I have the whole piece of information. It's the same thing like um, the Star Trek Into Darkness, the famously – the Khan uh, hides his identity from everyone, which made – which could have – it only made sense to the audience who – so you could say, oh my god, this guy is – Benedict Cumberbatch is Khan, but – when they say, I'm actually Khan, my name isn't John Doe or whatever the fuck he said in that movie, everyone goes, who the fuck is Khan? Because it doesn't have the – it's only a surprise for the audience members. And, and like, the audience members that know who Khan is specifically. <laughs> Which you, you and many other people didn't know at the time. But it's the same thing. It's like, oh, in the moment maybe you could make some case for like, I just wanted to, to size him up before I take him on and – become the real Picard and then when you find out that he needs his genetic material and he literally his entire plans are derailed until he gets his hands on Picard you're like what the fuck was that scene then yeah. he's just an idiot I, I I also want to park here in a recent in a uh, previous episode I said isn't this another Borg arc thing it's because when I was a kid and I saw the trailer in the trailer they have Tom Hardy with his yeah 
blue veins, like yep. blue veins popping up. He's got veins. Yep. His eyes are bugging out. I was like, "Oh, he's a Borg. He looks he looks inhuman." Uh, it turns out they were just showing a third act surprise that he uh, eventually starts his body starts freaking out, He's dying. Well, uh, and they do that in the trailer know. too. They're like head to like I actually rewatched the trailer because I'm like, why was I so not interested in seeing this in theaters when I there's a reason we're doing this podcast. I seem I should have, but like they have that whole like set a course for Earth, and it's like, oh, they never. Never does anything. It actually makes no sense why he's going to Earth at all. Like, they're like, that'll cripple the Federation. Uh, when anything is, again, if you've watched the show, you know, Earth is a planet in the Federation and has some import because there are academies there. But that's like being like, if you destroy West Point, the United States is done. <laughs> like, there's a lot of United, a lot of Federation left, guys. Yeah. The Earth joined. They didn't make it. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, and uh, and punishing Picard specifically just doesn't really make sense. Like, it would make no. sense if... He Picard never really gives to... us the good... Here, here's what makes sense. Yeah. He's a Reman. He considers himself a Reman. Yeah. Remans have been shit on by the Romulans. He was created by the Romulans. He was created by the Romulans. He considers them a... a just uh, uh, the people that he actually hates the most. They are a stepping stool to his revenge as opposed to the target of his revenge. Yeah. And make make a good movie. It's not about Earth getting threatened in this vague sense. Picard has to step in and arbitrate uh, a genocidal maniac to stop trying to obliterate the Romulans of people that have been threatening him his entire life. Yeah. Fix the movie. He, he, like, because like... So and that's so funny because one of the big things with like Star Trek. So I don't know how much you remember the Star Trek movie, the the two thousand nine movie, but the plot of that movie, not a spoiler, theoretically because you've seen it, but it may have more context, is that um, Eric ba- uh, Eric Bana's character is a Romulan who goes back in time because Romulus blows up. And he doesn't believe that people that could have stopped it stopped it, right? So, like, he's coming from the next generation future and going back in time to kill Spock because he feels like Spock should have stopped this from happening. And so, like, yeah, that that kind of idea of, like, um, and also in Star Trek Undiscovered Country, remember when they're worried that uh, the Klingon homeworld is going to blow up? That is such a good Cold War allegory because Shatner's, like, Maybe I should let it blow up. And so, like, this idea of, like, okay, Picard having to go and say, technically, prime directive-wise, this is an internal Romulan matter. And, you know, maybe it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if the Romulan Empire got a civil war and destroyed himself. And then has to choose between the fact of his own personal guilt of, like, wait, there's a clone of me? That is that is leading the charge to commit genocide against the Romulans. Now it does feel like I'm involved in a way that supersedes the prime directive. And yeah, having to make that choice to save the Romulan Empire from his own from their own experiment that somehow involved his clone is thematically compelling in yeah. in, in, in in a story. That again, essentially, they did that in Undiscovered. Like, if you're gonna rip off a movie, that you have Undiscovered Country right there, as opposed to the Wrath of Khan, where it makes no sense. And yeah, yeah my they, immediate they, reaction was, if you're gonna have a, a clone version of himself, 
one of these two people has to have it's sort of like in the shootouts that i need one person to be able to shoot straight i'm not saying that everybody in john wick needs to shoot straight i need at least john wick to shoot straight um in this i don't care if picard has to step in on shaky feet and be like i've been enemies with the romulans most of my career but like i do not want a genocide to happen against them like have somebody who has at least like a motivation that could have been uh could have been skewed off from picard Picard at some point if the right factors had happened if he had made a series of bad decisions this could have been picard that's how you do an evil clone plot you don't do the community evil twin thing i'm not not mocking community i'm saying community did this as a joke because of the trope but like that community trope where it's like the evil troy evil abed like kind (laughs) of kind of thing because the entire the entire joke of it is like ridiculous like oh it's just me but the evil version of me it's like well what's yeah. the point right um, yeah and they really don't even give that to, like they have like a scene where picard's like everyone's like hey are you depressed dude and he's like well i didn't know that a version of me could could kill people and data's like hey that's not a version of you i don't think a b4 as a version of me I'm my own person. And, and Picard's like, you're right, Data. I am my own. And like, that's it. Move on with that potential. Like, I don't think that's a very interesting, like, Picard is such like a, a study of the, like the humanities and philosophies and everything else. Like, he understands nature versus nurture. He doesn't need Data to be like, hey, you know that uh, actually the environment you're raised in has an impact. And Picard's like, <laughs> tell me more, Data. Like, I need it's your so objective stupid. analysis. <laughs> But yeah, like read me some, a Wikipedia page. <laughs> I know it's so dumb. Let's let's rush. The, uh, we I I think we can be done. Oh, really Here's quickly, some, really quickly. Yeah. Um, I think it's pretty impressive that Tom Hardy, who is trying to don an unnatural accent, he's young in his career, where he's being he's carrying a movie that maybe he was too junior to carry. I don't know. I'm gonna put it all on Stuart Baird. Um, he is so stiff and uncomfortable in this whole movie. And yeah, because the outfit they give. Do you know what I'm gonna say? His his Riemann Viceroy is killing it. Do you know who his Riemann Viceroy is? What? Oh, yeah. I, oh, yeah, of course. Of course I know. Yeah, I was actually surprised. I was going to say we have to mention it. Yes, of but course he, I know. It's, it's Ron Perlman, who, of yeah. course, played Beauty and the Beast. And then a few years after this, he would have played, uh, not long after this, actually, probably would have been on post-production, like, less than a year after this. Or pre-production, less than a year after this. Um, uh, well, you'd already been Alien Resurrection. Tons and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he he, he had uh, um, done prosthetic stuff with Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. Like, he had he'd done this thing where he had to drag the humanity out of a character that he had to work through, like Lon Chaney, yeah. like, work through the mask. And yeah. he does great in this movie. It's a thankless role, but, like, he really makes this, like, Riemann little descent monster mask work for him. Well, yeah, he Even looks so disappointed. Like he looks evil. disappointed at Tom Hardy all the time because he's just like in yes. between that mask to look disappointed is 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 impressive. Yeah, he's. I mean, he's Ron Perlman being great is not surprising. How little they give him to do and how little anything they do matter is is what's frustrating. Um, but I want to skip ahead to Data dying, which Peter, interestingly enough, and this is actually a question mark for me. So yes, they were like, well, what if we want to bring back Data? And unlike the Unlike the subdued 
out they gave themselves in Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, which, which I would note a lot of people – I think Nicholas Meyer specifically was very frustrated with that decision that came from not Nicholas Meyer, that like they did the little thing of him doing the hand on – on McCoy because he wanted it to be like a clean death without like sure go ahead and bring him back but don't give yourself an out in the movie but that's such a subdued moment and it could just be a remember me it's not clear that like him transferring his consciousness to McCoy is going to lead to anything at the time Leonard Nimoy was done being in Star Trek and very publicly was writing books like I am not Spock and everything else so like you know it was it was a minor thing that they did use even then there was people that are Nicholas Meyer was upset about it this one is like Hey, let's take that idea and literally make it not just go remember me puts a hand to the head. Let me transfer all my memories via a cord to this other guy. Now, with the and, and giving it such an obvious like, again, it's, it's almost as bad as the Star Trek Into Darkness thing where they're like, oh, no, Spock's dead. Oh, he's back. Same movie. OK, great. He's, he's good. Um, but uh, what's funny, Peter and I just learned this for the first time, too. So obviously the plan was that they could bring Data back if they wanted to. If they made another sequel, they didn't. The Star Trek comic book and novels, which obviously all of those uncanon books, a bunch of which I, I read uh, growing up, but I never read after this. I moved on from those books. All of the Star Trek non-canon fiction in novel and comic book form treated that implied ending as fact that data is transferred and essentially he become before becomes data and and no no changes did you know that picard which is actually the first canon pickup actually brett spiner's in that show i have no idea beyond this part how that all fits in but that uh, the plot of that show is that the transfer didn't take. The data did die in this. Oh, so oh, so they didn't retcon Nemesis out. They ran forward with it. They ran forward. And, well, they actually they retcon the idea that like the transfer would work. That mm-hmm. nope, transfer didn't take. It's not data. I Which think in the movie, bef- there's almost no evidence that data's in there. It kind of seems like uh, before is so compromised that he'll never be on data's level. Well, when I first heard that, you know, uh, uh, Picard and Brett Spiner was in it, I assumed he was data and that transfer and they were going to pick up that and say, yeah, the transfer worked. Apparently they did not. Apparently data died in Nemesis. And I don't I I have it. It's 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 like the way one of my favorite things about Last Jedi is that it takes uh, parts that people hate about the prequels. And it's just like, yeah. And you're like. Yeah, that's right. The Jedi Council were inept and myopic, yep. and they uh, they made horrible mistakes, and you know that's why we have to be better. Well, that's, yeah, that's mistakes. why Last Jedi is great because it actually makes the prequels watchable. Because you're like, yeah, all the stupid things you're seeing, everyone later on is like, God, we were so fucking stupid. Yeah, that's why they disappeared, right? That's why yeah. they were all genocided on mass in yeah. in Order sixty six. Order sixty six. I still laugh baby. about that. So funny. Yeah. <laughs> what's a what's a really evil sounding number huh what about the evil number (laughs) well that'd be six 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 what (laughs) um is it too late to go back and change it do you think disney will let me make it order six 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 i i think like six six is like 69 if you just like kiss normally and your feet touch (laughs) (laughs) Right, because you're not like reversed. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, like, but, if you have like, if you have missionary sex with your wife, you're doing an order sixty six. <laughs> 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 I 
<laughs> the most evil thing you can do. The most evil thing you could do, yeah. yeah missionary, missionary sex? What are you like? Sex with What do you have kids and trying to just get it over with? <laughs> uh, yeah, this movie's bad though. Um, I'm glad. Like, at one point we were gonna do this as the last next generation thing, and then move on what a to. Bummer. Would have been a really bummer. And what's what sucks? What's so amazing about Next Generation though is it does have like a really good finale and send off to this characters, which I think TOS did in Undiscovered. Like I love Undiscovered Country. I think it's a great send off to the characters. They even have that great like, hey, we have to go back and retire, and and Chandler being like, you know, f- you know, I think the or Spock saying like, I think the human. If I was human, I would tell them to go to hell. And you know, Kirk saying he's going to go second star to the right and straight on to morning. Like a great little ending from them, and all good things has a great ending for the characters in their, their series finale. So, so yeah. So what are we doing next week? Actually, what are we doing for the rest of this month? So we are, and again, I did, I we're doing these in order of when the episodes came out because that feels like, but it also has a nice little break that I've uh, structured. I think, well, I will say Peter, after looking at this and really paring it down to like, what are the episodes? Um, as I was going through, I'm like, oh, fuck, I forgot about that episode. But I'm not going to make you add another one to this already long list. I am going to try to figure on figure out a reason later on to, to do it. But episode one, we're going to do Deja Q, Sarek, Remember Me, Cause and Effect, The Next Phase, and The Inner Light, which actually gets us uh, – I picked no season one or two episodes. Those are basically some favorites that we haven't covered in seasons three through five because we have watched a few uh, like Darmok and Best of Both Worlds and some other one, Yesterday's Enterprise that I would have included. Uh, and then we're doing only season six and seven episodes, which I don't think you've seen any of, Peter, which is Relics, Tapestry, Frame of Mind, Chain of Command Parts 1 and 2, Parallels, and Lower Decks. And then we are going to end the last episode where we kind of give a somewhat send-off to Next Generation will be the finale only, which is all good things um are we are we are you planning on covering uh star trek lower decks lower decks is an episode episode. just the episode um i am actually halfway through season two of lower decks and it's fantastic i love it um so if you later on are like what would be a fun 20 minute star trek show that is like um that has jack quaid in it and is kind of takes the concept the so i don't do you know that peter that lower decks is canon to the show uh yes yes i knew that uh even even though like it's a it's animated right it's animated and it is very silly and goofy and but it has like um like will Riker and troy show up as like the captain of the titan which is where Riker leaves at the end of nemesis he's going to become his own captain um, in very goofy mode and a lot of references. What's funny about uh, Lower Decks is that it's a uh, solidify something that uh, in the Star Trek universe, Star Trek characters watch Star Trek because they relive missions that are recorded by the ship's computer on the holodeck. So they have they think of Picard and Riker, these like nobody crew members on a on a nobody shift. They think of them as heroes that everyone looks up to in the universe and it's a very very funny show that's still like the people that made it know star trek very well and have a lot of very like they have funny jokes 
that are it's a comedy show without it becoming like a family guy or a parody it still like is like hey you know what not everyone in the universe is super serious all the time yeah. and um and yeah I, so i think i think like lower decks that the episode which follows minor characters on the enterprise interacting in a dramatic fashion is like a very cool template that they eventually many years later made a comedy excited. version of. yeah because yeah. My it's, goal a, it's is, a good show though my goal is to uh my goal is to keep this rolling. My goal is to uh, finish, uh, once we get through the Abrams movies, um, is to uh, do chunks of episodes and touch on some of the other shows and really do not just a best of, but also do like a notable episodes or episodes that push forward the lore or, hey, that was really weird that that happened, but they had to lean into it. Um, yeah. Or like the, the one DS9 thing... like a movie, like we have yeah. like a... a a do a nine or ten episode arc yeah yeah i like i do think the part what's funny because i finally i've been as i've been reimbursing myself in some track i haven't seen they made a documentary called what we left behind that reunites many of the people from deep space nine it's a really like fun documentary because they also get all the writers together uh from ds9 and you see them storyboard like if we did a season eight, what would the first episode look like? Like a twenty year later season eight episode one. So they don't actually do it, but they storyboard and you see them break the story and it like it's it's pretty cool. But like as I was watching that and being reminded of like how goddamn good DS9 is, there is that part of me that's like, how do I get you to just watch DS9? <laughs> like I know DS9's no, harder like, to chop up. Like it's harder to do selective episodes it's also just so goddamn good yeah i mean like it is like uh the 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 like season three through seven is about as good as star trek i think will ever be even as someone who's like some of the the newest stuff and like yeah how do i get peter to watch 175 episodes of a television show uh and like maybe it's like hey every year we do a season where we talk about season one and then you have a year to watch season two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something, something like that. But anyways, yeah, I, I agree. I I think there's so much stuff out there and excited. But I'm especially excited for the next couple of weeks because it's, it, you know, it's encouraging to hear you liked The Defector. and Because uh, I think oh, you're going to watch a bunch of other great episodes. So, yeah. Yeah. Peter, and that's it. We always sign off to infinity and beyond. And beyond, baby. Oh, Little blind spider took the wheel Navigating grass blades completely by feel Got a sassy chassis sparkle in the sun All four small bald fat tires Rocking through the sand and burning up Little dune buggy in the sand A little blue dune buggy in my hand